0: Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church of Robbinsville. Thank you for joining us. We trust that the teaching of God's Word will speak to you. Thank you, worship team. Good morning again, church family. It's good to be here with you this morning. Visitors, we welcome you here. We're so excited to continue this series this morning in Matthew chapter 5. If you have a Bible and love to turn to the gospel of Matthew chapter 5, we're listening to Jesus preach the greatest sermon ever preached, his sermon on the mountain. For the past several weeks, we've been listening to the Beatitudes broken down, the attitudes that he's invited us to live with and find our happiness in him. So as we begin this morning and you find yourself standing there on the, on the mount listening to Jesus, I want you to think about um, this idea of an atmosphere, what it's like whenever you are with a large group of people, And everybody around you is just hopped up, okay? And so maybe some of you were at the wrestling match Saturday when they just dominated the first two rounds of the playoffs. Maybe some of you were uh, at Murphy the other day when the varsity girls came back that final two minutes. And just the atmosphere is just loud and crazy and everybody's hopped up. A lot of you love to go to listen to your favorite sports team um, wearing the jerseys, you go to the stadium, you go, you go and you cheer for them and just the atmosphere is wild. And some of us love to go to concerts. David Crowder, anybody ever been to a David Crowder concert? And it's just hopped up, right? And so in, in those moments and at those places, it's pretty cool, you meet people that have just traveled from really far away. And, 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 and they're just there for that one moment. When I was a kid, occasionally I got to go to a NASCAR race. And at a NASCAR race, there were really two types of people. There were those who loved Dale Earnhardt, and there were those who hated Dale Earnhardt. And so when Dale Earnhardt would take the lead, the whole stadium would just go crazy. When Earnhardt would wreck somebody and take the lead, the place would just go crazy. And in the background, there were, you would hear some distant boos. But for the most part, it was just number three uh, everywhere. I, well, just in the setting of the Sermon on the Mount... I want you to think, look at this from a map. The Bible tells us that the Sermon on the Mount took place somewhere right there above the Sea of Galilee. And the last sentence of Matthew chapter 4 tells us how far people came just to be there. To be a part of this atmosphere. They came from all over Galilee. They came from Decapolis. They came from way down in the wilderness of Judea. They came from Jerusalem, which is like a three-day journey, and from beyond the Jordan River. Now, how many of you have traveled a two- and three-day journey to cheer for your team, to go to that concert? So just, just pause for a moment and just kind of just see everybody gathered together. Two or three days getting there. Everybody's wearing a Jesus jersey, probably number three, if he had a number, you know. And and, and just, he's healing the sick, he's casting demons out, and now he's preaching. I mean, the atmosphere has got to be hopped up. And so, as he moves through these first several statements that we've been through through the past few weeks, he says these two words, you are. Now, I want you to... Pause for a moment and just, let's just feel the weight of this because the understanding the background of the people that are there gives us a little bit more of an oomph when we hear Jesus say these words. According to Matthew 4, the people that are there were once sick, diseased, afflicted, paralyzed, and demon-possessed, and he's healed them all. So when the words come off of Jesus's lips, you are. Those people would have heard those two words a lot in their life. But, when, but, but the words that would then follow you are just are unimaginably derogatory and condescending. And, and just could I pause for a moment and just ask, have you ever heard you are, and then the words that followed that were just not worth repeating this morning in a sermon. Maybe it came in your home and it just broke you as a child. Maybe it came from a teacher or a coach because you just weren't good enough. You just didn't get it. Maybe it came at work because you just kept getting everything wrong. Maybe it came at school because you were being picked on. You are. And often the words that follow that focus on our, on our physical appearance and they're trying to communicate. You're just, you're not good enough. You don't fit in. Sometimes they focus on who we are mentally. You're not capable. You just don't get it. And sometimes they focus on who we, we are emotionally. You're crazy, you're out of your mind, you're not wanted. So you just feel the weight of that for a moment. And maybe there's a lot of us here today that can relate to how powerful the words of Jesus were when he got to, we'll just say verse 13 in this sermon. And it is here that I would love to invite you to please stand with me In reverence and honor for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible word. If you could, make eye contact with Jesus. You're at the Sermon on the Mount and he looks at you and he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. He looks at you and he says, You are the light of the world. You up on the balcony, you're the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the the depth of the words of Jesus would resonate with our hearts today. That we would understand our identity in Christ that anyone who hasn't found Jesus would be drawn by the power of the Spirit and the beauty of the gospel today and trust him. And for those of us who have, let us see the mission that flows from that identity lived out in the name of Jesus. Have your way today. Amen. So for just a few moments... We want to take this passage and just break it down. And we want to see that Jesus is speaking into a new identity. He's calling us all, as He did then, to have an identity that's centered around who He is and what it looks like to live out those Beatitudes as a follower of Jesus. And He tells us the overflow of that identity being lived out will have an impact. On those around us for Christ, and it will be a life that is an illumination of Christ to a dark and broken world. And so, if someone was sitting here today and said, Well, you know, it's easy to hear those words, but I can think of a lot of people that that would apply to, but just not me. No, it's for you. If you look back again at the people at the end of chapter four and you just think, they were once sick, afflicted, diseased, and tormented by demons. Jesus meant it for them. He means it for us. His mission is meant to be fulfilled through His people. And step number one to living out that mission is actually believing the mission is for you. And it's believing that He has called you by name and He gives you this identity. He says, I don't care. What other people have called you, I'm calling you. It doesn't matter what they've said about you, even if it was true. I'm calling you to a new name and a new purpose. And so maybe someone would say, well, how do I make that shift in my mind? Because it's really easy to let those words of someone else at school or someone else in your home or someone else at work to run through your mind. Maybe just start. By asking this question, if you could look back into Jesus's, I imagine, big brown eyes and say something back to him, how would you feel in this blank? Jesus, you are. Because for the people that were there that day, they could already say, you are my healer. You took the time. You are all compassionate And merciful and loving. You saw into my darkness and my disease and my afflictions and you took the time to change me. They don't even know him as the Messiah yet. The disciples on the front row, they know, they they believe he's the Christ. Christ. But for us today, we see the finished gospel of Matthew. We see the death on the cross. We see the resurrection from the dead. We see his ascension back to heaven. And we can say, Jesus, you are who you said you are. You're faithful and you're true and you're good and you're loving and you're merciful. And I can trust you if that's a struggle today for you. I pray that just as we flesh out more of what he said in the next 20 or 30 minutes, that those words would sink deep into your heart and deep into your mind, and you would leave here believing this is who he is, and this is what he's called you to. And so he spoke an identity. He said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Those two words, salt and light, are words of worth, we know that a lot is a big deal. We know that a lot is meant to be turned on, it's meant to sit up on a lampstand, it's meant to give light to everyone in the room. We know that light lets us see. It lets us, it exposes what's in the darkness. It it lets us it guides our path. We know that a lot has a lot of worth. But what about salt? What do we do with salt? How can I mean, how many of you have ever been called salty? And so to kind of figure out what Jesus is saying, we want to go back for a moment and grab hold of the worth and the value of salt during the time that he spoke it. And just kind of dwell on some of the things that salt meant back then because salt had a big impact on the way people live their life. Salt, when he says you're salt, he's saying you are worth Everything. That's why I left heaven to come for you, because you're worth it. I want the relationship with you. So often salt was used to pay someone for their wages, a day's work. Often salt was measured, and instead of money, it was like, here you go, Trevor. Did a good job today. Here's your bag of salt. It's like, all right. So let's, let's flesh this out for a moment. First of all, we could look back and we could see that salt then and even salt today has medicinal purposes it 's used as a medicine Salt, uh, often people would gargle salt in their mouths, and some of us still do this today with warm water and it helps what helps your sore throat right? Salt sometimes was swished around in people 's mouths to help prevent and cure gum disease and kill bacteria. Some of us put a little saline in a warm wa- in one little pot of distilled water, and then we put it in a neti pot, and then we flush out our sinuses. There's a few of you here, I know. It's amazing. Changes your whole day. Amen. In the front row. So, Salt was also, sea salt was a natural antiseptic and an anti-inflammatory used to disinfect and cleanse wounds. So let's think about what Jesus is saying. What is he saying about salt that is our identity... That when we live it out, it has an impact on those that are around us. When we take the the medicinal side of salt and then we look at the commands of Scripture, we can kind of see that practically speaking, when we take the time and we notice hurting people, we notice people that are struggling. Maybe it's mentally, maybe it's physically, maybe it's emotionally, but most certainly when it's spiritually. When we take the time and we go out of our way to just say, hey, I noticed you. I see you. How can I pray for you? And we look for those opportunities to serve somebody, encourage somebody, maybe cheer somebody up. Medi- la- the Bible tells us that laughter is medicine. It's it's in those moments that you, Christ in you becomes Salt, a healing source in that person's life. And they go home that day thinking that you took the time to speak into their hurt and speak into their brokenness. So what does the enemy want to do? Keep us so busy and so focused on all that we got to do that we never see people that are hurting. But Jesus says, be the salt of the earth. Share the gospel with people that are spiritually broken without me. Point them to me. But we could also say this, salt back then was used as a fertilizer. It was used, uh, farmers would sprinkle it around their plants, and it would help the plants get more uh, nutrition, grow, bear fruit, and even fight off pests and diseases. Let's think practically again. How do we as a church help people to grow? The big idea here is discipleship. When you think about the the gathering together of God's people, we're all coming today not to argue, not to fight, not to try to prove my point, but to create an atmosphere where individuals, young and old, can study the Word of God, study the Word of God in its context, soak in Scripture, and then apply it to their lives. We leave here growing. We leave here more equipped to bear fruit. We leave here today going home to say, God, if there's sin in this home, I want you to cure it of, that, of the sinful diseases. We go to school and to work in our team to be salt. And to, and, and to say, man, if there's, if there's sin in this place, I'm here to help. I'm here not to participate with it, but to see fer- fertilizer fall on the ground and to help people grow. But then there's another big picture of salt. And that's this idea of salt being a preservation. See, when fish were caught on the Sea of Galilee, and everybody would have got this when Jesus said this, when fish were caught on the Sea of Galilee, those fish had to be transported often all the way down to Jerusalem, 60 or 70 miles away. Now, with no refrigeration, with no freezers and no trucks, the only way to preserve that meat from decaying is with salt. And so salt was put on the fish, and the picture here is that the earth is decaying. The world around us, the people around us are decaying because of sin. And I want us to just step back for a second and think, what does the scripture tell us to give us a deeper awareness of how we're put on this earth to preserve what God has said is good and true and where real happiness is found and what real love is, is because the word love is so distorted, what real marriage is because marriage is so distorted today by the decaying world. Well, it's interesting when you just stop and step into Romans chapter one, I don't know if there's a passage in the Bible That gives us a better picture of what a decaying society looks like. People that are becoming rotten like fish without salt carried in the hot sun for three days. Romans 1 tells us that all people are without excuse for knowing and worshiping God. Because the evidence is all around them. Well the text goes on to really say this. People are worshiping and serving creatures. Rather than the Creator. Three times in Romans chapter one, the Bible tells us that God gives them over to vile passions because they're rejecting Him. They're choosing to decay, they're rejecting salt. And God says in Romans one, the result of that is homosexual lust, men going after men, women going after women, being filled with all unrighteousness. Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. People become full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, and unmerciful. That sounds like rotten meat, doesn't it? And when we just step back as a church and say, if that's the earth that's decaying and we're here to be salt, God has put us here to show every person you don't have to live this way. You don't have to die this way. I've got good news. God wants to preserve you and change you and make you fresh and new. Wow. Changes everything. And so as a church we're reminded to keep our minds aware. Of the decay of man in the earth that we're called to be salt in. And really one of the, if this is one of the best chapters. Then Genesis chapter 18 has one of the best stories. Do you remember in Genesis 18. Whenever Abraham and Sarah are sitting there. And three men walk up. Two of those men are angels and one is the Lord himself, the pre-incarnate Son of God. And they walk up. They begin to have this conversation with Abraham. And then before they leave, God tells Abraham what's about to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah where his brother Lot is. And Abraham's like, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, surely the, the righteous and the wicked can't be destroyed together. And God says, hey, I'll tell you what. If there's 50 people in that city, if there's 50 grains of salt in that city trying to preserve it, trying to change the wickedness, I'll spare the whole city. And then the conversation goes to 40 and to 30 and to 20. And then Abraham says, Abraham says, Lord, suppose 10 people, Suppose there's 10 grains of salt in the whole city, trying not to give in to the wickedness and the lust and the hurt, and God says, I'll tell you what, I won't destroy the whole city if there's 10 grains of salt there, and then the Lord went on his way after he finished speaking with Abraham. And soon those two angels walked into Sodom and walked into the Gomorrah and they were met by Lot and they were going to sleep out in the town square and Lot said, no, 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 you can't do that. He knows how wicked it is. Lot said, come to my house and stay here. And, the, and he fixed those two angels a big feast and it wasn't just a few hours. Men, young and old, started beating on that door. Lot, we know there's two men in there Send them to come out here. We want to know them sexually, immorally, man to man. And Lot said, no, no, you can't do it. You can't do it. And this went on back and forth, back and forth. And eventually, those two angels stepped out and blinded the men out there because they couldn't see the salt that was in front of them because of the wickedness that had them blinded. Now they're physically blinded as a result of their spiritual blindness. And those angels the next morning told Lot, you've got to leave. The city is going to be destroyed. There's not 10 grains of salt here. And he told him, take your wife and take your daughters and leave. And whenever you leave, this is so important, don't look back. Don't look back. And so as Lot and his wife began to leave, and they began to run. They said, we can't make it to the hilltops. We're going to go to another city called Zoar, however you say it. Those angels said, I'll tell you what, we will spare that city since a little grain of salt is going to that city. We'll spare Zoar. And so as they went, the text then tells us in Genesis 19 that God did what he said he would do. Brimstone and fire rained out of heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. But Lot's wife looked back. Lot's wife disobeyed. Lot's wife decided, I'm just too curious to see what's happening to this wicked city. And isn't it interesting that the Bible tells us she became a pillar of salt? But the pillar of salt that she became is exactly what Jesus is talking about in verse 13. Jesus said, look, I've called you to be the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, if the salt begins to look back and focus on wickedness, if the salt becomes consumed by the world that's happening all around us, If the salt becomes like many churches in America today, embracing the culture, accepting the culture, rather than trying to help the culture know Jesus, we're going to change truth to try to fit in with the culture. Jesus said that church will be just like Lot's wife. We'll lose our flavor We won't be able to season anything anymore. Nobody ever went to that big pillar of salt and said, man, I'm going to put this in a shaker. I'm going to go use this for some fertilizer. I'm going to go use this to preserve my meat. It was a wasted, saltless pillar of salt. Jesus said, it's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trepled underfoot by men. Now, look, a lot of you do this. I know that a lot of you, we all know that salt is good for seasoning. I love some sea salt. I love some kosher salt. And, and some of you, when you sit down to eat, you don't even taste your steak. You just start salting it. I know there's a few of you here. Everybody's looking at you, Cody. <laughs> Cody's steak looks like it's been snowed on before he starts eating. It's okay, because what we know is well, no matter how good the meat is I'm about to eat, it's going to get better with a little salt, Right? And so Jesus is saying, as a church, we're called to be flavor to the world. When you eat something salty, you get thirsty. He, d- d- Jesus says, I want to I captivate your heart and life so much that people become thirsty for me because what they see in you. And they come back for more. When you eat a good steak, you come back for more. Jesus says, I want people to come back for more because they see what's happening in the church. But when salt became saltiless, when it loses its flavor, there's a whole study of what what that's about, but here's the big idea. Back then, what they would do is they'd say, it's no good. So they would go out to their patios or their walkways, and it was just like fine sand or little pieces of gravel and just fill in the cracks. Or just kind of cover their pathway. It wasn't good for anything. It lost its purpose. Can I say to someone today that's discouraged. Maybe you've lost your way. God's saying come back to me. I want to put you on the right path. I have a purpose for your life. I know what's happened in the past. But I'm calling you not to look back. Like Lot's wife. But to go forward. And be the salt of the earth. If your life changed today for the glory of God. Would people know it? Would people see it? Would people be impacted by it? That's what he's calling us to. So then thirdly, when we get to verse 14, he gives us another picture. He puts another spin on really the same thing. He says, you're the light of the world. I want you to think about yourself. Maybe you felt like you're in darkness this past week or over this past year. Just think for a moment when the Son of God says, you are are the light of the world. Well, We know in the gospel of John, he's the light of the world. So he's saying, I'm the one that turns the light on. It's so neat that when you look up at the moon at night, the moon doesn't glow during the day. The sun is shining in the day. But the picture here is at nighttime, the moon is glowing bright because it's reflecting the sun. That's what Jesus is saying. I know you're in a dark world, but I will reflect my light through you. And so when we think about a light being turned on, and he makes it really clear, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He's not called the church to a secluded life. This is why we're so passionate about relationships. We're so passionate about doing life together. Young, middle, and old life groups renew. is because... You and I were never meant to sit alone in the darkness. He called us to let the light of Christ shine so that people could see it and come to know him. So now let's think about this. If we go back to the map, see the arrows now pointed the other way. See the arrows now. Jesus is kind of saying to the people at the Sermon on the Mount, you're not meant to stay here forever. Go back to Galilee and let the light of Christ shine. Go back to the capitalists in Judea and let them know what Christ has done. Go to Jerusalem. Go to the Jordan. Let them know Christ is here. I'm coming and I'm here to change the world. So this is fascinating. This just blows me away. Sometimes, when you look at verse 16 and you see the good works and how the good works cause people to glorify our Father in heaven, you kind of wonder, how does that work? Well, let's let's close today and think about it at the macro level and then at the micro level. Some of you remember, in 2009, there was this really famous quarterback who loves Jesus He wore scripture under his eyes before every game. He was talked about and put down all the time. And whenever uh, the Gators beat Alabama, Tim Tebow had Philippians 4.19 under his eyes. And they were going to the big championship game a few weeks later, which was on January the 9th. And a lot of you may remember that that game, he actually didn't wear Philippians 4.13. He prayed about it and he felt like I need to wear John 3.16 under my eyes tonight. Well, after the Gators won that game, John 3.16 was Googled 94 million times. Now, he didn't plan that. He just tried to shine for Jesus. He just tried to say, look, I just want the world to know more than football is Jesus. More than winning is Jesus. My life, my love, my Savior is Jesus. And God brought a lot of attention to the greatest love passage in the Bible. Well, so what's so interesting, and you just could never have planned this, is exactly three years later, on January 9th of 2012, Tebow was quarterbacking for the Broncos in the first round of the playoffs. It went into overtime. In the first play in overtime, Tebow threw a pass. The guy called it, run 80 yards for a touchdown. They win. The game's over. They're going to round two. And later that night, someone comes up to Tim Tebow and says, do you have any idea what just happened? He said, yeah, we won, we won, we won in overtime, we're going to the second round, we're going to play the Patriots. No, no, no. Do you have any idea, Tim, what just happened? Today is exactly three years from whenever the Gators, when y'all beat the Oklahoma and you wore John three sixteen under your eyes. He's like, oh, that's cool. Three years to the day. And he said, no, 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 no. Do you realize tonight that you threw for exactly 316 yards passing? Do you realize that you threw a total of 10 passes and your average yardage pass per completion was 31.6? Do you realize that of all the times you handed the ball off and ran it, the yardage divided by the number of handoffs was 3.16 yards per carry? Do you know that the TV ratings was 31.6? And do you know that, that 90 million people tonight Googled John 3.16? Oh yeah, there's one more. And the time of possession was 31 colon 06. Now you stop for a second and you just say, was God shining a spotlight on John 3 16? You can't plan that. You can't write that. You can't make it up. You just have to just say, oh, there's one individual that just stood for Jesus. And God brought a spotlight, not to him, but to John 3:16, telling the world, "For God so loved the world that He gave his son. I know that's a big deal. And here's what's so good for us as a church. We don't have to try to measure up to that. We don't have to try to say, "Well, I guess my life doesn't count if I don't reach 90 million people." That's the macro level. On the micro level, what I want to do today is just close with a practical illustration of what God does day-to-day. I'm going to grab a chair and i ask ask Jeremy to come up here and sit in this chair. Now, I want you to notice here for a moment that Jeremy's sitting down and the light that is in front of him is turned off. Jeremy represents a person in our lives that we rub shoulders with every day, a person that's lost and in the darkness and dying because of the sin and the decay of man, and he needs salt and light in his life. Or you could say that Jeremy represents a brother and sister in Christ that's being hurt by the church, that's just going through a hard time at home, that's just being discouraged. They've prayed and they've prayed and they've prayed and they feel like God's not coming through and they're just discouraged. And what that brother, sister in Christ needs is salt and light in their life. So here's what I'm gonna do. We're gonna sit this, this is one of those don't try this at home illustrations. We're going to, we're going to, somebody said, oh my goodness. We're gonna sit this jar of water up here on the stage, plug the lamp in, and the water itself doesn't conduct electricity. And so the first several kids here today, I asked them if they would be willing to be a volunteer. And they said, yes. So I'm going to ask the first person to come up. And this person represents what it means to be poor in spirit. And just pour that salt in the water. Thank you, sir. And so here's a person that rubs shoulders with Jeremy this week. And all Jeremy sees is that person is just dependent upon God. No matter what goes on in their life, They just begin, he just, highs and lows, they trust God. They look to God and he's thinking about it. And then Jeremy rubs shoulders with someone else. This person is mourning. Jeremy sees, just pour it in. Jeremy sees this person. They've done something wrong, but they're broken over it. They're discouraged about it, and they apologize. They own it. They don't make any excuses, and they're broken over their sin. Or maybe they're going through a really hard time at home, and they just say, Lord, I look to you for comfort. I don't understand what's happening, but I look to you, and he sees that salt and light, and he's thinking about it. And then another person comes up. And rub shoulders in Jeremy's life, and this person is meek, lowly, humble, gentle. Just pour it in right there. Thank you. Jeremy's mind is thinking. This person is like power under control. They have the power to do. Incredible things, boss everybody around, but they humbly and gently lead and serve others. And then he rubs shoulders with someone else in his life. This person has a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And now his mind is really spinning. The light's turning on in his life. He just, no matter what that person does, he sees that they always want to do the right thing. They have opportunities to cheat, to lie, to steal, to make money doing something crooked. But the more Jeremy gets to know this person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, the more he says, just no matter what, they do the right thing and it's always to glorify Jesus. Well, then another person. Rubs shoulders with Jeremy throughout his week. And this person is so merciful. This person has the opportunity to just run somebody through the ringers, sue them, take them to court. And all he can think is they're so forgiving, they're so compassionate. They're always going out of their way to help the hurting, and his wheels are just spinning. And then another person rubs shoulders with Jeremy. Where'd he go? Come on down, big man. Channing, you can come on down, take a front, take a seat up here if you want to. Come on down, Wyatt. This person is sweet as can be. Pure in heart. It's okay. Just dump it in there. Good job. Pure in heart. Pure in motive. Never does anything for his own glory, his own esteem. And Jeremy's around a lot of people that just... Do whatever they can do for their own glory and to make themselves great, even at the expense of others, but not that person because they are pure in heart. And then Jeremy runs into another person. This person is a peacemaker. Everywhere this person goes, Jeremy sees if there's a quarrel going on, if there's an argument and a fight, this person tries to help people cooperate instead of fight. This person comes in and speaks gently, and instead of stirring the pot, they're just trying to help resolve things, help marriage, marriages talk through things. And Jeremy just says, man, I don't know many people that are peacemakers, And then Jeremy comes to a church, and he knows him, he knows her, and he knows him. And he just says, that church is the church that they say is a cult. That church is the church that everybody's always talking about. They're misrepresented, they're misunderstood, they're put down all over the community. But you know what? The more they get talked about, the more they seem to rejoice in Christ, Because they know who they are. They know what Christ has done. And they stand on the authority of Scripture. And they refuse to be moved by what people say or do. And then he just puts it all together. And he thinks about it. And he thinks about it. And the light gets brighter and brighter. And the gospel comes in. And the power of the Holy Spirit draws him to Jesus. This discouraged brother or sister says, I don't know what's going on with those people, but the light of God has shined in on my life. And I want to go and be a part of the greater thing that God is doing, because I think He might want to do that in my life too. Can we give our volunteers a little round of applause? So let's close out service today and just say, look, I don't know where you're at, what you're going through today. Welcome to a church of imperfect people. But we are constantly realizing who Christ is and what he has called us to. And we're trying to go after that. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would heal the brokenhearted because of who Jesus is and because of the mission he's laid out before us. Lord, we ask that you would call the man or the woman that has not trusted the gospel to rise up off their feet and to say, give me Jesus. And they would come to faith by the power of your spirit and what Jesus did on the cross and the fact that God raised him from the dead. Lord, we pray that you would stir the affections of your people to not waste a single day Lord, we wake up with a to-do list. Let us not believe that success is dictated on whether or not everything got done, but what we got done for you that day. Interrupt our schedule with people that need salt and need light. And you do, Lord, what only you can do, and we will thank you and praise you that we get to be a part of your rescue mission to a world that is decaying and rottening in sin. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope that you were encouraged by the teaching of God's Word. If you have questions or would like more information about our church, you can find us at www.robinsvillefbc.org or call the office at 828-479-3423. God bless you and have a great day.